keep coming. Uh, just thank you all for coming from all Wax Life. Uh, San Pedro, San Pedro. We got uh, men's basketball, UC Santa Barbara, women's basketball at UC Santa Barbara. Kitty and Susan, Lafayette, California. Jill, Chevy Chase, MD. Wow, Walnut Creek, California. Kitty's game. Uh, we got Tracy, California. VT, Valerie Toller from Hayward, California. Hi, Val. Thanks for coming out. Uh, we got my group in Katati. Uh, Elsa Bronte, San Francisco, Burbank, California, Mary Mack, Vicki Williams, Vacaville, and Ronner Park. New York City, welcome, Megan, from such far away, Lafayette, California. Arthur, thank you, you and your huge family, all 20 of you, 10 of you, 15, I'm not sure how many exactly. New York City. Arlington, Texas. Welcome. Got about one more minute, a few more people lagging on and we'll get started with uh, this evening's program. Thank you all for joining from all over the place, all over California, all over. Oaktown, Paula Pardini, thank you for the wonderful poem in our weight room from Toni Morrison. This is the time. Thank you, Paula. We're going to get started. Um, got a good program for you. My name is Louis Renault. I'm your host. Good evening, wherever you are from all over and welcome to beautiful. Uh, I'm in sunny Santa Barbara, California. Welcome to Good Grief. Why is American in crisis? What can I do? This is our second Zoom uh, kind of following up with a little different way. I have a special guest who I'm going to introduce in a second. Um, the purpose of this webinar is we're going to sh share some information, continue our education by, by sharing some information and provide you with some resources and solutions to kind of what's been going on and what we talked about a few weeks ago in some other areas uh, that are new. Uh, my special guest and panelists this afternoon, we grew up together both, we were both born and raised in San Francisco. Our parents knew each other, families grew up together. I have not seen Susan in many, many years. I don't know how this one been. We have a special welcome song for Susan that we're going to play. Without further ado, my special guests and panelists for tonight, Susan Toller Carr, all the way from the Horses of Troy, that great band, 
Suits and welcome. Thank you for coming and being our panelist special guest this evening. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yep. Thank you, Lewis. Don't don't date don't date me. <laughs> don't tell me how many years we've known each other. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think you're a little older than me, but uh, I know we share uh, San Francisco love for that city. We grew up there. Our parents were best of friends, and um, we went to St. Amidius together. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of lost track of you after that a little bit, not totally, but uh, where did you go right after St. Amidius? Um, I went to this school. Oh, first I went to high school. I didn't go straight from eighth grade. I know to you college. were smart. But I, I was smart, know. but I didn't do that. I went to Convent of the Sacred Heart uh, High School uh, in San Francisco, and from there I went to Los Angeles and uh, went to the University of Southern California, and I never moved back home. Okay, Susan. Well, welcome. Uh, it's good to connect. Um, thank you for for giving us your time. We're going to be on for about fifty minutes or so. You giving your presentation, and uh, can we take a look at? Uh, we're going to just get a little overview of, of what uh, Susan's going to go over. Good yeah. grief, wise American crisis. What can I do? And Susan, it looks like you're going to go to your story, story first, a little bit about you. So, and then what's in your bag? Um, in my bag, there's Titleist and Pro V1s. Uh, do you remember Earth, Wind, and Fire? What's going on, Marvin Gaye? Tools and resources. What can we do, do at the end, giving us some tools and what can we do for this? Okay. So um, Susan, without further ado, uh, take us out of space, Doc. You have the con. Okay, before I start, there's people trying to get in, but it's blocked, they don't have, so you can look at the numbers or think that something people are texting me, so there might be an issue with getting in. All right, okay, we, will, uh, we will deal with that and you can go ahead and start. All right. Can everybody see my screen? Okay, people are saying that they can't get in. Well, we're working on it. Go okay, ahead. great, thank you. Um, so like Lewis said, uh, we, we grew up in the, um, in the neighborhood and um, went to the same grammar school and um, you know, we've been close, but I haven't seen them for many, many years. But today's topic, it's gonna be uh, good grief, why is America in crisis? and what can you do? I got back in touch with Lewis a couple of weeks ago when uh, he heard me give a presentation to some counselors, uh, college and career counselors. So thank you for having me, Lewis. Um, this presentation is, I created it just in a week or so. Um, all the, the graphics in there are things that I grew, drew, the cartoon graphics, and um, they, uh, we're going to talk about stuff that's old that you may know already. There would be new information, but I will say that all the information are factual and it's all true information. And there's personal information here as well. I think I like to tell stories and I think storytelling is um, what's important. And for me, and that's the way I'm able to share that for you. Okay. Can everybody see? So we're gonna talk about what's in your bag, what we carry. Do you remember what's going on? What can you do? And I'll give you a little bit about my story. 
So I was like Lewis said, my name is Susan Toller Carr. My maiden name was Toller. Grew up in San Francisco. I attended the University of Southern California. I have a degree in civil engineering and a certificate in business management effectiveness. I'm a registered professional engineer, and that's what the PE in my after my name stands for. Um, you, I got a certificate um, from college and career counseling from University of San, UC San Diego. I'm the co-founder of the Justin Carr Once World Peace Foundation, certified grief recovery method specialist, and a certified mental health first aid for youth and young adults. And uh, like Lewis said, we, I attended um, a Catholic school and a predominantly white institution at University of Southern California. I have multi-international family and friends. So when Justin was uh, four years old, uh, my husband remembered a story that he was blessing the table and he said, you know, God, I want, help me to achieve world peace. When he was um, nine years old, instead of asking Santa Claus for a new um, bike, he asked for world peace. So Justin was always the one who helped the underdog and he was allowed to pursue all the things that he liked to do. When he was uh, three and a half, I was working at Universal Studios. Um, I uh, worked at Imagine Walt Disney Imagineering. I worked in uh, for, um, different companies and I was the type of engineer that needed to be out in the field wearing a hard hat to see things built. So the teacher assessment was that um, she said that she loved to learn, loved to watch him learn and grow each day, that you love spending time with friends and your drawings are more detailed each day and you love dancing and dramatic play, building with blocks and sand play, and you're a happy child, and you love to laugh, smile, and tell stories. And when you think about it, our kids spend most of their day awake at school, and we spend most of our day at work at a job. So, excuse me, so, you know, people are able to see who you really are. Teachers are able to assess, you know, who they really are. So, like the teacher said when he was little, she said uh, that Justin was the actor. The Big Bad Wolf was in when he was first grade. And then he's been in all different other um, uh, plays, every play that he was able to get into, he was. So the teacher said he was an actor. He was surely that actor. He loved building with blocks. He uh, went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and was rebuilding houses. And architect was his thing. When he was in fourth grade, um, he came home. And he said, Mom, I have to be Michael Jackson tomorrow. So he said, I need to go get a wig, an afro, and the suede fringe vest and everything. And he watched MTV, and he learned the song overnight. So he was the singer as well. Loved dancing. He loved uh, just moving around. He was a busy little camper, and we allowed him to do everything that he wanted to be. He also loved to draw. So he did the butterfly when he was in, um, uh, three years old. And the woman, the bottom right, where the woman's um, holding the hand, that was in stained glass. And he also, she was, his teacher, Mr. Tara, was pregnant at the time. He came home, he said, Mom, we did stained glass at school, and I drew Mr. Tara. So he was very creative and out of the box. And the two other pictures at the top, he did um, uh, artwork at school. He was able to um, have, a, have great teachers, a great teachers that showed him how to do art. And he would just draw all the time, build things whenever he had free time. And Justin was uh, our, our only child. That's my husband, Daryl, Justin and I. Justin loved to swim. 
Uh, he was on swim teams and he was um, a junior Olympic when he was 10 years old and butterfly was his favorite stroke. Unfortunately, Justin died on um, February 22nd, 2013 from an undiagnosed heart condition and we didn't know anything about it. And he had sudden death in the school, in a school swimming pool while he was um, uh, swimming. And so uh, that devastated us, that changed our life, really it changed our world. And from that point on, I couldn't even go back to be an engineer anymore because losing Justin was the game changer for me. And I just couldn't be, he was so close to, he was a junior in high school, he was 16 years old. So things happen, you know, and so you just don't know, you know, what people carry in their backpack. This is a tragedy, unimaginable loss that I sometimes can't even find the words. So, you know, when I'm walking down the street, people don't know that I lost a child. We can't see, you know, what we carry in our backpack. And we all have um, things in our backpack. We carry in our purses, our briefcase, in our backpack, just without even in something. We carry stuff that we keep inside that no one else sees. So what is mental health? You know, I learned about that quickly after, you know, losing Justin, when people want you to hurry up and get over it and be strong. And they're saying all these things that don't make sense to you when you're living in that moment. But a mental health is a, a person's condition with respect to their psychological, emotional, and social well-being. And the World Health Organization said that one out of three, you know, people screen positive for some form of anxiety or depression. And so um, the journalist uh, for Ad uh, Adolescent Health, you know, they said that, you know, we, it's, a, it's a big epidemic and this is pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. So, you know, mental health should be everybody's issue and we are all stressed out. So grief is the normal and natural response to the reaction to a loss. It's conflicting feelings caused by a change or an end in a familiar pattern or behavior. You know, it's emotional. It's unique. We all wish that it could be different, better, or more. How I feel is different than what my husband feels. You know, it's an emotional loss. So, you know, we all wish things could be different, better, or more. So people usually associate grief with a death, a divorce, a relationship, a job, George Floyd, you know, illness, the COVID, pet loss, a move, politics, trauma, uh, you know, uh, abuse, a loss of trust, and loss of safety, income, DACA, you know, natural disaster, terror, can't compare, can't compete. So as I said, no one can compare, you know, how, how with, with someone to another, how you feel. You can't compete. There's no timeline. And grief is often mislabeled as ADHD and PTSD, but it's grief. We're grieving. So when you have an end of a familiar pattern of behavior, you know, boom, like that, it becomes emotional. So how common is trauma? Trauma occurs when a person is overwhelmed by events or circumstances and responds with intense fear, horror, and hopelessness. Five times more with trauma, you people are depressed. One in eight kids suffers from trauma, and that mental health can last for years. So witnessing a parent homicide or sexual assault can lead to PTSD. 90% of sexual assault, 77% of school shootings, 35% of violence, that's all adds to PTSD. 
70% of adults in the U.S. experience some trauma. That, that's 2.23 million people. In the U.S., a woman is beaten up every 15 seconds and a forcible rape occurs every six minutes. So we have to look for emotional swings and isolation and withdrawals. You know, some people have survivor's guilt. And so you can have to help people connect with others and to try to avoid stimulus. And sometimes, you know, trauma-informed care, if the kid comes to school and he throws a chair and the teacher kicks him out of the classroom, she may not know what he saw that morning or that he didn't eat, or he's, you know, doing shifts on who can sleep on the couch. So you have to treat the whole person. You know, if you can't, but the one thing about trauma is you can't unsee what you see. When you see something, you can't say, I never saw that. So what is racism? Uh, Beverly uh, Tatum said that why are all the, she wrote a book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? She said, racism is not overt discrimination. It's not individual acts of hate. It's when benefiting from a system of privileges is based on the race that are suddenly ingrained in surrounding culture. It's difficult to detect. Sometimes it's institutional that when you see someone that doesn't look like you on your campus or in your work, if you feel that they're there only because of affirmative action, not that they're capable. There's a lot of little microaggressions that go with that. So if we're moving on the sidewalk, if you stand still and you do nothing, you are, are helping to perpetuate that. And sometimes it's time to walk against the grain for things to uh, change. You know, back in 1990, uh, uh, Peggy McIntosh, she wrote an article called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And she said that she was taught to see racism only as individual acts of meanness. And she didn't realize until she started talking to um, her African-American friends that, you know, that you can pretty much move where, that for her, she could pretty much move um, wherever she wants to. Her neighbors will be neutral or pleasant to her wherever she is. That her skin color will not work against me in life or school or social settings or in stores. That she can go shopping and travel all around the world without being harassed. And when she asks for the person in charge, they look like her, or they usually look like her. And teachers and administrators look like uh, her. And she, can't, she said that she can protect her kids most of the time, but what she's found is that African-Americans, uh, the parents talk to their kids about how they deal with the police, and that white parents talk to their kids about how not to forget their phones. So this is what was, she wrote this in 1990. So, you know, the invisible knapsack, there's stuff where, you know, they have special provisions already, passports, visas, tools, and blank checks, and there's the white privilege, and there's codes and certain things that make them survive and not have to deal with the, the typical. So microaggressions are a statement of action or incident as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. So getting followed as soon as you walk into a store, that's happened to a lot of people I know, even to myself that the only person that they ask to show ID in the checkout stand, I've watched, I've witnessed that even at Trader Joe's and I question that. So, you know, a lot of times some of the kids, these are people I ask what, what happened to them. And one kid said, you know, the only time that white people cheer for him is when they're in the stadium playing a game. So when people tell you, you know, how well-spoken you are, or that you write well, I don't say that to anybody else. 
but I guess they figure they don't me may not me mean it, but they may think well, for a black person, you know, you talk pretty well. So when people see, don't see color, but there is color, you know, when they address your white partner instead of you. And so the question is for those that are getting the microaggressions is like, should you respond to a microaggression? Is it up to you? It's up to you. You know, will your physical safety be in jeopardy if you bring it up? Will the offender be defensive and will, you know, this lead to an argument? And how will you bring it up to will it affect your relationship with this person? If you ignore it, it will, you, will, you will regret doing so. If you let them off the hook, does that convey that you're okay with that? So that's something that's individual and you have to think about how you want to deal with that. So, you know, here's my family. So I have six siblings, I mean, five siblings. We, as I said, we went to Catholic schools, went to college. Um, we, uh, they went to college, they all had jobs. My parents were educators in the, um, in the school districts in San Francisco and counselors. And I have an interracial family. So some of the kids are biracial and they embrace both of what they are and that's we're expected. But one thing about this picture is every black man in this picture has been stopped by the police with the exception of Justin. And for stopped for no apparent reason other than driving while black. This really became apparent to me a few, um, a few weeks ago when my cousins, um, and we were having a meeting, a discussion, and my brother said, you know, told me all the times that he was stopped. Um, and uh, my nephew found out that my nephew graduated from Berkeley, went to private school, doesn't matter, was stopped 14 times on his way home. And so, uh, you know, that's uh, painful. It was painful, you know, just driving home. So this is, this is real. So this happens, and those would be microaggressions. So last week I made a post on Facebook and I got a comment from a, a guy that we grew up with. And he said to me, he wrote to me and he said that I could use this. He said, as a white man, I used to be annoyed by the term white privilege. That's because I did not understand what it meant. Now I'm, I learn, I'm recognizing where I've been benefited from white privilege throughout my life. One personal example was highlighted by Susan in her earlier post about how many times her brothers and her cousins were been pulled over by the police. Our families lived two blocks away from each other and we all went to the same grammar school together. We traveled the exact same streets. The Tollers were always an exemplary family that everyone looked up to. Our family, not so much. Yet it was her brothers and cousins that were stopped by the police countless times. I was never stopped by the police. When I attended USC for engineering, I had to take one in for all the different wires. And when I was in class, the teacher shows, the professor shows the color code. And then he says, I'm going to tell you guys something, how you can remember it quickly. He said, black boys rape our young girls, but Violet gives willingly. So black for black, brown for boys, rape for red, orange for R, yellow for young, girls for green, blue for butt, violet, for blue, gives for gray, willingly for white. And I, this happened in a class, I was one of three girls, the only African-American at the time, and there was one guy from Nigeria in the class, and he told me don't say anything, but I couldn't hold that in. So I went to the dean and I, um, and I shared with them. 
And so um, um, that was, that's how he taught the class. So he had to apologize the next day, but how many students that he taught that to? And I really can't remember anything else from that electrical engineering class except that. That's a microaggression. So adding to the fuel of our fire of grief and loss since the whole George Floyd incident has surfaced, um, we found out where Justin went to school, there were some people were making statements about different things that they said. So now, as I said, Justin was an Olympic swimmer. Butterfly was his favorite stroke, one of the har hardest strokes. And when he died, some of the kids said, oh, it makes sense that Justin drowned, which he did not drown, because he's black and black people can't swim. So we just found this out uh, a couple of weeks ago and it just took us back to that moment that someone told those kids that black people can't swim and that they just assumed that it was fact. Justin could probably outswim 99.999% of the kids in that school, yet that's what they thought, black people can't swim. So those are the things that we have to be aware of and that they do exist. So I'm gonna tell you a little about full disclosure. So my father, as I mentioned, was an ed educator in San Francisco, and he was also the first professional African-American official for any professional sport when he was selected to be an NFL official in 1964. He was also a San Francisco police commissioner for almost 20 years, and his brother Dave Toller was also a police officer. So we have other family members that are in the, you know, the police um, department, but I'm just telling you that my dad and his brother were, were part of that. So do you remember? I have to go back a little bit of time. So a brief history of slavery and the origins of American policing. So the slavery and the control of minorities were two of the most formidable historic features uh, in our American society and that shaped the policing, that there were slave patrols and night watches, which later became you know, the modeling for police departments where they were both designed to control the behaviors of minorities. That's how it started. And we know lynching, you know, that started whites in the South started lynching because they felt it was necessary to protect the white women. So there's a lot of big cases, the Emmett Till case where this kid was, the lady said he touched her in a store, brushed past her, they start, they killed him and they dragged him. And his mom showed his, his, his body just so they could see what they really did to him. They threw him in the river, they add weights to him. And so there's also um, the Tulsa, Oklahoma riot rise over almost 100 years ago that a woman said that a kid touched her in the elevator. So that just destroyed thousands of lives. Um, so terror lynchings were horrific. And the problem was that no one ever got made accountable for it. So the public lynchings were big, you know, spectacles. They had, you know, they call in, they hang them, they decapitate, do all kinds of things to the black people to keep them, to scare them straight. So it's been around for a long time. So the Jim Crow, you know, where whites are superior to blacks in all important ways. So a black man couldn't hold, shake a hand with a white male. They could not eat together. They could not, um, he couldn't add a light a cigarette for a woman. They are not allowed, the blacks weren't allowed to show public affection between each other. And so that they, they had, that's where the, um, you, you had to introduce um, a white as a mister or a missus or miss, but the blacks were always their first name. And so, you know, and if a black man rode in a car or he'd had to ride in the back or the back of a truck and that white modalist had the right of way in all intersections. And this was years ago, but I, I know that it's still prevalent down in the South today. 
So I you know, was coming up with these titles and I said like, what's going on? And I pulled up to see how long ago Marvin Gaye wrote that song. And it was 50 years ago. And it was inspired by the vi violence and police brutality in America. 50 years ago, and here we are 50 years later and we see what's going on in our world. So do you guys know why Colin really took the knee? Because we have to educate ourselves instead of we just assume, you know, and he wanted to protest against police brutality of unarmed black citizens. A white green beret told him that that was a respectable, respectful way to protest. The NFL collectively uh, ostracized him together. They chose the knee on the neck that pressures, stifles, gags, chokes, and silences. They did that for all the other guys that played. There's like 75% of the NFL are black guys. And they probably wanted to join Colin, but they were thinking about their paychecks. So a few weeks ago when we had the George Floyd incident, there's two different knees. And Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter said, if you're unbothered or mildly bothered by the first knee, but outraged by the second, then in my father's words, you're more devoted to order than to justice and more passionate about the anthem that supposedly symbolizes freedom than you are about a black man's freedom to live. So, I mean, I can't tell people what their beliefs are, but these were the real reasons if we dig deep down into the reasons why. And as of today with so many little incidences getting captured on video, the, the uh, sarcastic girl named Karen has come about. And so just so you know, Karen is a mocking slang term, a meme that's used for an entitled, obnoxious, racist white woman who uses her privilege to demand her own way at the expense of others, whether it's rude or polite racism. So we know about Amy in Central Park. She was rude. And she had confidence, complete confidence, in the police that she knows. And she said it and she showed it. The woman on the right, Lisa Alexander from San Francisco, stopped a Filipino man while he was riding in, in chalk on his own property that Black Lives Matter. So she has her hand on her chest because she was polite when she told him he didn't live there. So these are the kind of things that are going on. There's been other people that call when you're barbecuing, call the cops when you're selling lemonade, calling when you're singing, smoking a cigarette in your car. And this, this is kind of nonsense. So this only perpetuates hate and fear. So as I said, Modern day public lynching. That's where, we at, where we're at right now with the George Floyd. And um, we all saw it. We heard the 20 commands that he was trying to say, I can't breathe, my body hurts, help me, mom, mama, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. He's trying all these things. It's horrifying that we saw that and how callous that police officer was kneeling on him with his hands in his pocket. So the thing about it, people always try to say, why do we know George Floyd had a criminal record? You know, they try, they, when he got killed, they didn't know anything about him. So everybody has to find a cause. Well, because he did the time. The police officer, Derek Chauvin, never paid the price for his 18 to 20 crimes that we know about, for his crimes of injustice. So, you know, 18 to 20 times and you've done bad things, but you're still working, that shouldn't happen. And those are the ones we know about. So Rodney Glasgow said, he's an uh, educator back East. He said, George Floyd represents the intersection of two pandemics. He was living with coronavirus, but racism killed him. George Floyd represents the intersection of two pandemics. He was living with racism, 
but um, but the but the, the but the virus killed him. I want to show you uh, a video that's it's six minutes long, but it's worth to give a description of what's going on. Uh, so bear with me one second because this is about the COVID, and I think it's very important. And when I saw it, I said this gave me more insight on what's really going on. Can you guys see that? Governor John Bell Edwards made a stunning announcement Have you guys? Okay, hold on one second. He said that at the time, 70% of the coronavirus deaths in his state had been African-Americans, who only make up about 30% of the state's population. Today's nationwide numbers show great disproportionality. American, African-Americans account for 23% of all COVID deaths in the United States, even though they make up just 13% of the population. That means the de their death rate is almost double what it might be. The question is why? My next guest, David Williams, has the answers. He is a professor of public health at Harvard. Welcome, David. So explain simply what is it that, that, that is producing this, uh, this disproportionate death rate for uh, African-Americans? Thank you. Great question, and it's good to be here with you today. I think the important point to remember is that the pattern we see with COVID for African-Americans, we've seen for more than 100 years for every major leading cause of death in the United States. So it's true for heart disease, it's true for diabetes, it's true for infant mortality, it's true for hypertension. Across the board, we, we see this pattern. So it's not a new pattern, it's just that COVID-19 has shown a bright light on a pattern that has existed for a long time and we have not done as much as we could to make a difference. What drives it? In virtually every country of the world, the strongest predictors of variations in health are income and education. African-Americans have markedly lower levels of income than whites. The latest data from the Census Bureau shows for every dollar of household income white households receive, black households receive 59 cents, Latino households 72 cents. Importantly, the black-white gap in income today, that's 2018 data, is identical to the black-white gap in income in 1978. You heard me correct, I didn't misspeak. I said 1978, the peak year of the gains uh, from the civil rights policies and the anti-poverty policies of the 60s and 70s. Most of my students think we have made a lot more progress on closing the economic gaps in the United States. And as bad as the income data show, they understate the extent of racial differences in economic circumstances because income captures our wages, the flow of resources into the household. Wealth captures our assets, our economic reserves, our, our cash in the bank. And for every dollar of wealth that white households have, black households have 10 pennies 
and Latino households have 12 pennies. Um, you said that uh, in, in America, your, gen your, your zip code is a better predictor of your health than your genetic code, because the neighborhoods actually, uh, and their he health and wealth matter a great deal. That's correct. Um, I, I'm not the only one who say, says that. Most public health experts in the U.S. today say that. Why do, they, why do we say that? Because where you live in these United States, for most people, determines where you go to school, determines the quality of education, determines your preparation for higher education, determines your access to good jobs later in life. Where you live uh, determines the quality of neighborhood and housing conditions, determines the extent of to physical, chemical, toxic substances, determines the quality of city services, determines what is easy to, to exercise in your neighborhood and whether you have access to places where you can get fresh fruits and vegetables. So most of the factors that drive health are powerfully patterned by place. In many metropolitan areas in the United States, there's as much as a 20 to 25 year gap in life expectancy from one neighborhood to another that's just a few miles away. Um, when, when we think about the kind of events of the last few weeks and you think about the life of, of say, young African-American men uh, in their encounters with law enforcement, uh, dealing with the kind of inequities you're describing, um, you have done research that actually can almost quantify the, the level of stress that this kind of uh, discrimination or inequity causes and then how that stress impacts one's health. That's correct. And I'll talk about three kinds of, of work that I have done. Number one, relevant to the current conversation, I, with other colleagues, published a paper two years ago where we looked at every police killing uh, of African-Americans and whites in the United States and over a three-year window. And then we looked at the mental health of the population in every state in the United States. And we linked these two databases together. And we were able to document statistically that every police killing of an unarmed um, African-American led to worse mental health, not just for the family and friends, which would be understandable, but for the entire black population in the state in which it occurred for the next three months. So we, we, are, we are showing the long-term impact and the community-level impact on, on these. And importantly, it wasn't every police killing that did that. It was only police killings of unarmed black people that led to that outcome. It's the perception that that um, action was unjustified and unfair that seemed to be the aspect of it that drove these um, worsening mental health for the population. More broadly, I've done work on developing measures to capture the stress of discrimination. These police killing, killings, um, there are about 60 um, police killings of an unarmed black male on average each year. So there are lots of other things that affect African-Americans in their day-to-day -day life. Let me tell you about one of the measures. It's called the Everyday Discrimination Scale, and it captures the extent to which people are treated with less courtesy or respect than others, receive poorer service than others at restaurants or stores. People act as if you are not smart. People act as if they're afraid of you. Little indignities on a day-to-day -day basis. But what the research shows, that people who score high on everyday discrimination have worse physical health, worse mental health. For example, pregnant women who report everyday discrimination during their pregnancy 
give birth to lower birth weight infants. Uh, persons who report everyday discrimination, high levels, have higher levels of high blood pressure, have higher levels of inflammation, have more rapid development of subclinical heart disease. One study finds that higher levels of everyday discrimination actually predicts premature mortality. The accumulation of these negative effects is literally killing people prematurely. And, and I gotta let you. I gotta let you go at that uh, on that, David. Okay, so like he said, for every dollar earned, black and brown people can um, earn less. For every dollar saved, they can earn ten pennies to twelve pennies. And so there's such a disproportion, and that's the things that have to change. So, you know, we have, we have to be, not be fooled, we all need to wear a mask. And so what COVID and racism have in common a lot of times is that people don't believe they exist if they haven't affected, if it hasn't affected them personally. So let's unpack it. African-Americans, um, these are the students of color, people of color, BIPOC. So African-Americans are in the Latina X, which includes people from Brazil, but does not include Spain. Hispanic includes Spain, does not include Brazil. Native American Indian, Asian Pacific Islanders, Far East, Southeast Asian, South Asia, Middle Eastern, African, non-African. So BIPOC is a new term. I don't know how new it is, but it means black, indigenous, and people of color. And it stands for the people of color with the emphasis on those pain caused to them. And so for due to the colorism or colonization. So, you know, students of color academically, they feel academically, emotionally and, and, and unprepared for college. Hold on one sec. Sorry about this. Can you see my screen? Lewis, can you see the screen? Okay, students of color feel le uh, less academically and emotionally prepared for college. Health, mental health, like I mentioned earlier, is a psychological, emotional, and social well-being. 51% of black college students feel overwhelmed most of the time compared to 40% of white students. Black students are less likely to seek help compared to white students. Students of color don't seek help overall collectively, and they're less likely to succumb to drug or alcohol abuse. This is pre-COVID and George Floyd. We, did, and we just don't know what, we're, what kind of students are we gonna get when school starts back up, so we have to all be mindful about that. So students of color carry extra weight. As I mentioned, historical stereotypes, microaggressions, no money, limited education, they feel hopeless, excluded, racial violence, injustices, the stigma. So those are all piled in their backpack. And then they have to learn and study and pass the test. Uh, there's also untold hardships in the backpack where you got loaded down with bricks already. You could be low income, first generation, international student, a vet, military family, foster homeless, LB, LG, BQQT and some people who have suffered with grief and loss, disabled or bullied, student athlete, uh, kids that have IEP and 504 plans and that are gifted, those that feel disenfranchised, 
um, adverse child experience. Those are at bad things that, that kids see when they're younger and it does not stop there. I mean, it carries on to an adult, to, you just can't say, poom, I'm now 15, so I'm gonna forget about everything that happened to me. We all have stuff. So when students go to a classroom, they wanna see someone that kind of looks like them, but that's not really the case when you look at the number of the percentage of minority teachers in public schools. So there's 7% of blacks, 8% Hispanic, 2% Asian, and, and a half a percent for American Indian. So there's so many obstacles that these kids are getting just to get over based on race, gender, and class. So a lot of times they're just trying to put the effort on getting to the finish line and you overlook those struggles. So the difference between white and black girls in K through 12, okay? That they're six times more likely than white girls to be suspended for the same offense, three times more likely to get school suspensions, three times more likely to be restrained, two times more likely to receive corporal punishment, four times more likely to be arrested, and three times more likely to be referred to law enforcement. So I drew these images, you know, when I thought about the unseen queen. So how could the black girl see herself when all she sees is just despair? She needs to have that confidence and there's no reason why our kids can't have the same. The prison to pipeline. So you get kicked out of the classroom, get kicked out of the school, you do soft crimes, you go to juvie, then you go to jail, you can't find a job, and you just get pushed out. There's a good documentary called Push Out, and it's real live students that got pushed out of school. And they had other so many things that they were carrying in their backpack. And I think we need to really look at that, what these kids have. And we need to provide more money for those services to keep them in school and keep them educated and keep them having faith in themselves. And I've even read stories where kids aged three to five were suspended from school. That needs to stop. So the tale of two cities. So we all know about Michael Ferguson. I mean, excuse me, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. But all we saw on TV were all the riots and all the looting and everything destructive as his body lay in the street. But I did a little bit more research and it turns out that the school that Michael Brown graduated from was the most segregated school in, in Missouri. And it ranks last in the overall academic performance. It scored 10 points out of 140 points for assessment for 15 years. So the whole time Michael Brown was in school, the school wasn't serving him. 10 points that they use as a gauge for how good your school is. Only 50% of the males graduate and only one out of four go to a four-year college. Everybody says he was going to college. Well, the college he was going to was a, is a troubled for-profit trade school that they target underserved vulnerabilities. So it's like, you're not gonna get a job, you're not gonna have a career, come here, we'll train you to be whatever, and you gotta pay us a whole bunch of money. So that whole Ferguson town, the no, it was known for unemployed, underpaid, unsatisfied, unskilled, unsupported, unmotivated, unhappy, and undeserved. So, you know, five miles away from Normandy, that's where the grand jury um, did not indict the police officer, Darren Wilson, who shot him. And it's in the Clayton Public School District. There, they're predominantly white. There's no poverty. The top 10%, they're the top 10% in the state of Missouri. 96% graduate and 84% go to a four-year college. You're talking five miles away and there's such a distinct difference. So we have to pay close attention to what we owe our kids. So we, we all have that identity where you, your circle of safety usually is people that look like you. 
the white identity, you know, it's normal to go, you know, you, you play, you work, and you live by people who kind of look like you in most cases, and you don't think much about it because you're in your comfort zone. And so when, when you're in mixed spaces, you're aware, and you notice the advantages and benefits that you have. So for African-American students, you know, this historical stereotypes are you're, you're dumb, you're lazy, you're scary, you're violent. And as truth be known, the darker the skin is more threatening. So um, there's microaggressions that we talked about. They're the token, the pioneer. So they have to work a lot just to get along and they're marginalized. And when they're doing just what they tell you to do until you get more points, you know, that's become a threat, then things happen. And so the cumulative effects of the physical and psychological fatigue and trauma, you know, that that has drained someone. So there's a new phrase that well, it's been around for a few years about John Henryism. There's a folklore about John Henry, and he was a slave who was so strong that he and so so wanted to work so hard that he worked himself to death. And so they're they're coining that phrase for our students. They want to work so hard that they're sacrificing their own physical and mental health. So Disney put out the, the movie, John Henry, and they were supposed to, they had, John Henry was a darker slave, but they, um, they put the rock as the John Henry because his appearance was more appealing. It wouldn't be too scary. So there was an I2M Harvard campaign where the, the students, of, uh, the student from Harvard, um, they wrote what, what, what people said to them while on the campus of the, the number one college in the university in the you know, United States. And the top picture, the guy says, you know, someone said to him, did you just submit your picture to get in here as if he wasn't qualified? The middle picture was a woman. She said, just because I have an um, I mean, opinion doesn't mean I'm an angry black woman. The bottom picture, the girl said, someone said to her, you guys run really fast because you're always running from the police. You know, so we have to really think about what is going on, what these kids are, are carrying in their backpack, and we have to make a change because stuff is not funny after all. They, if they're athletes, they want to go to school, they want to graduate too. Why not? So for the Latinx, Latina, Latinx students, they're portrayed as illiterate, lazy, dirty, hypersexual, not taken seriously. They have anxiety, there's a lot of insults and racial slurs, and they assume they should be grateful to be there. And they're wishing that at least one of their classmates looked like them. I have a student that went to college and she said that she went to her class and there was no one in there that looked like her, so she dropped the class. And I told her, you're gonna be dropping the class for every class, you can't let that happen, you gotta find your place. So a lot of people have told me that their culture did not prepare them for fighting on their own. They feel invisible. So the image to the top left, I, um, I created that um, based on one of my students who said that she went to a, a private school in San Francisco, she was in a class and the teacher asked the opinion of the students, what do you think about Mexicans? And the kids said they're garden hopper, garden, gardeners and border hoppers. And they assumed because she was Hispanic that she was a DACA. She was born and raised in America. Her dean also said that she probably wouldn't get into USC you know, she's in USC. She was a capable, qualified student that goes to USC. And then when you have the headlines saying that, you know, they're drug dealers and criminals and what, you know, what's coming out of the, uh, it's just, uh, that's in print, it's just hard to believe. And then when you have teachers that dress like Mexicans and build a wall, what do you, what kind of impression of, we're the, we're the mirrors for our kids. So American Indians, the Native American Indians, they feel like they're frozen in time, that they're savage, drunk, whores, 
they don't see themselves represented. They see them as mascots and casinos. A lot, there's a high percentage of school dropout and suicide and alcoholism rates are high. They want to be, they're always seen in the past, but they want to be in the future. They want to need to see themselves in the future. Arab and Muslim students, they feel their stereotypes are they're oppressive and violent and hijab wearing and they're in the desert, they're terrorists, they're discrimination. They assume Muslims are Arabs. They're bullied, there's racial slurs, there's hate groups, and they're penalized for praying. And so we have to really think about that. Asian and Pacific Islanders, you know, the model minorities, they're not a problem. They're quiet, high achievers, they're good at math. You know, campus needs are overlooked because they see they're all, they assume that they're all going to achieve. And one of the things when this tiger mom image came out, you know, people wanted to be that. They wanted to push their kids, push their kids. So they have relationship issues and their extreme mental health and there's pressure cooking. And so we have to like be aware and you know, there's, there's um, websites that do studies of various nationalities and races of kids. And um, they're saying that, you know, some of the Asian and Pacific Islander students have a higher rate of su uh, suicide and they're less likely to get help. Uh, there's a movie that's on YouTube called Looking for Luke. He was perfect in high school, perfect at college, and he took his life. And none, everybody wondered why, because he held everything in. So we really have to be aware of well, what are we trying to get at? So as I mentioned earlier, that black kids keep their feelings to themselves and some turn to religion. They'll say, I pray on it. They have hidden trauma. They feel that time will heal. And people have said, just forget about it and God will take care of me. So if you had a flat tire and if, 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 if they say time will heal, will you sit in a chair and see if that tire will get inflated? We got to take care of ourselves and bring that stuff to the forefront. We can't hold it in. So what's gonna happen? If you keep that cork in and you don't remove it, it can explode. So we have to stop, look, and listen. Stop, look, and listen. So understand what Black Lives Matter really means. It was started in 2013 as an African-American social political movement. That these students wanted, these kids wanted basic human rights and racial equality. Black people, um, were, they want equal application of the law. So they are organized throughout the countries to, to uh, bring to forefront what was going on. And so, you know, people are talking about, if you're tired of hearing about racism, imagine how people are, you know, experiencing it every day. So, you know, look at the, look at the history, read. So, you know, they wanted to build a peace movement that brings all black people to the black issues that, so they want social justice, they want justice, they want peace. When Justin was in uh, 10th grade, he wrote a, a letter to the, uh, the administration because he wanted them to start a diversity program. He saw so many things that were going on, on his campus that he said he wanted to, you know, he felt that it was needy, necessary that we embrace all the different cultures and that we needed to have a diversity week. Um, in January 7th, 2013, a junior questionnaire he wrote, he said he wanted to change the stereotypes and the perceptions of African-Americans that the media portrays as the hip hop culture and he wanted to change the stereotypes that he had in his school community. So a lot of college students have, have gotten together throughout the country and they put together a list of demands that they want to see on their campuses with an increased diversity of professors, have diversity training, have culture centers, have required classes for students, track race-related offenses and have mental health resources and look at renaming buildings that are not up to par and retain more minority students and expand financial aid. So one student, um, the organization at Missouri started it 
and some other colleges. Now there's over 400 colleges that have had the demands and this is how the students are using this packet to work with this. When Missouri, where they're trying to get rid of the president, uh, it wasn't until the football team, which hit them, you know, the revenue boycotted, that they looked at what the students were crying about. My father went to the University of San Francisco, and two, three years ago, they renamed a dorm in his honor because the name of the previous um, holder was someone that had racist ties in San Francisco. And there was a, a kid that was playing hockey, and he was getting racial slurs from the parents and the, and the players from the opposing team, but his team came to rescue. We have to be allies. We got to stop it. So things educators can do with their students of color. You know, view a student's failure as a problem with the institution, not the student, and encourage students to study together and support each other. You know, Chinese students work together in groups. Black students work alone. Make the success of all the uh, BIPOC students a campus-wide priority. We can't isolate them and have them in small offices. We have to change the faculty mindset so they have high expectations of success. From a robust, you know, aggressive core of counselors. Can't, you can't solve a problem without talking about it. And don't pretend they don't exist. And they need spaces of affirmation as well. For supporting black students, you know, don't stereotype. Give them epoch opportunity, have some empathy. You know, you have to be, get down to their level, find out what's going on with them. You, you know, we're brilliant and creative and we have dreams too. And pursuing, pursuing higher education should not make us sick. Family's important to us, listen to our stories. For Latinx students, you know, gender inclusive, don't stereotype. They are a racially diverse get, group and get to know them. And family matters, listen to them and their stories. And, provide programs that will merge them into the academic programs. For Native American students, strong culture and family. Once again, we can't stereotype. We, they rely on the wisdom of their elders. Listen to them, tell their stories. There's a high rate of suicide and alcoholism, so check in on them about issues with their family and what's going on. For Asian students, understand their culture that discourages empathy. Um, they're raised to be ignorant of expectations and adapting to competition, it's okay to be emotional. Show them how to communicate. Don't stereotype. Afri I mean, Americans talk about themselves and Chinese students tell you who they are. You have to listen to their stories as well and have some empathy. What can you do? Did you know that we are tired of talking about something we didn't create? These pa this past month or so has been exhausting for every black person that I know. And there's many a days that we just can't even get out of bed. There's many a days we can't breathe. Every time I hear of a story, it takes the life out of me. You look at those families that are lost, regardless of what the past history was of that person, everybody deserves a fair chance. And we know that we have to do the work in our own communities ourselves. But we want the same thing for our children. We want to have a shared success in all aspects of our life. We want equal justice, so we have to learn to be anti-racist and work against policy. And as I mentioned before, that flat tire, passing the time won't heal. So are you willing to get new glasses? You know, when you see these kids in groups, are you going to get scared? You know, the way the teachers look at them, they feel that they're no good, so they don't pass them. They don't protect them. They don't teach them. So we have to look at changing our lenses and see what our racial lens is. 
So my dad said, the children learn most of their first character lessons at home. So remember that, we're the mirrors for our kids. Accept the fact that there are different strokes for different folks. So headlines, you know, the media needs to be held accountable for higher standards. These headlines, the one to the left, that describe the Santa Barbara shooting suspect as a soft-spoken, polite, a gentleman, the ex-principal said, but a black victim, Ohio man was carrying a pump air rifle, not a toy when the cops killed him. Another white suspect, straight A student, caught to bomb a high school. The black victim is a shooting victim, had the run-in with the law. The bottom left, that's Brock Turner, Stanford swimmer, who was charged and convicted of raping a girl. He got six months. The judge wanted to let him go because he didn't want to ruin his life and he got let go after three months. But the mugshot they put up of Brock is him in a suit. The mugshot of other, I mean, the shot they put up of other African-American rapists are mugshots. So you already get that perception. We already know what happened with the college scandal. There's women sitting in jail right now for five years with lots of fines bigger than what the college um, scandal parents got. One woman was just trying to get her kid a better education and falsify the record by changing the address. The top right victim was a DUI. And the girl asked the cops, why are you going to arrest me? I'm white. I'm a clean girl. Don't arrest me. So we have to be accountable. But you realize that there's different strokes for different folks. I had to put this slide in here. This happened uh, last week. Maricosa High School is out here in Manhattan Beach, California. And so the students had their drive up graduation. They coined that they were doing a Black Lives Matter march on the beach after and like 600 kids showed up, no one was wearing a mask, they weren't practicing social distancing, and they walked down the pier in Manhattan Beach. The vice principal of the school said today on the news that we didn't know that they were gonna respect, were not respect the COVID directions, but you know they're kids. So they didn't even have any Black Lives Matter signs or protests, that was just a ploy to use so they can have their way. And the police, even though they broke the rules of, of congregating in groups, the police aren't going to do anything about it. Now, let's flip it. Had it been a group of Black kids, we already know what that story would be. So, you know, things that you can do, what can you do with your kids? It starts at early ages. So don't hide things from them. They're smarter than you think. You need to talk about COVID-19, racism and the Black experience and privilege, the inequalities in schools and communities and adjacent neighbors. You have to have the courage to do the work, and you can't shortcut it. Yes, read up on it, yes, but what are you gonna do? You know, you don't learn about people of color through the media or social media. Teach your kids to move in spaces, teach them how to treat another person and respond. And it's okay to have friends that don't look like them. There's the Seeds of Pieces an organization and they have toolkits online. They're out of Hawaii and they're trying to have a, a 360 degree approach to peace building. And the parents play a part, the community and the kids. And they teach them about critical thinking and courage and conflict resolution and compassion and commitment and connection and collaboration. So don't become preoccupied with your children's academic ability, but instead teach them to sit with those sitting alone, teach them to be kind, teach them to offer help, teach them to be a friend to the lonely, teach them to encourage others, teach them to think about other people, teach them to share, teach them to look for the good. Excuse me, that's how they will change the world. Give them hope and not fear. So what can I do? Let's be clear. 
Firing Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, and getting Juneteenth off are front lines of defeating white supremacy and dismantling structural institutional on racism. Better schools, better you know, criminal justice system, access to health care, that's more what they're looking for. We want the same things that you do for your kids. We want our kids to look in the mirror and see that they are capable, that they are beautiful, that they could be queens too, that they can have confidence. What else can you do? Are you ready to become an ally? You know, sometimes racism disappears when you try to look at it with your eyes. When you are a neutral ally, those inequalities, inequities will still persist. Are you gonna be a bystander or an upstander? You have to interrupt the anti-racist. How will you be able to handle Karen and your family? Are you ready to get uninvited to family events where white supremacy is rampant or have hard conversations at work with your family, with your friends and your community? What are you doing after you put your protest signs away? There's all these diversity and inclusion programs that they have at companies, but they must be paired with justice and trans transformation, not just quotas. We have to really look at what they really stand for. And we have to be really honest about power and privilege. We all need to take five minutes each day to, de to breathe, you know, because there's so much going on in this world. So a thought exercise to help reach the, uh, racial, the racial, racial justice, this came out last week. So um, think about these four things. To help reach the Mother Teresa standard, aggressively consider your actual lived uh, starting point on the be belonging spectrum. Okay, school leaders to use Chavin's act as a, pro a provocative symbol for a thought exercise. Think about these four things. Whose neck are you kneeling on? If nobody's is your answer, how do you know? In what ways do your actions, your systems, or beliefs constrict others' ability to breathe, particularly black and brown students, staff, and adults? When black and brown people can't breathe, can they tell you how and when and where? When they keep hearing that this is not the right way to protest, what are they supposed to do? Do you only allow their expression on your own terms? If they told you they can't breathe, would you hear them? Can you make your priority their priority? What noise blocks you from hearing their pleas? What more important to you than listening to them? If you heard them, would you listen? What would you do? Offer thoughts and prayers that they'll find strength to get through it. Ignore them and keep pressing. Let up and move forward towards recovery and healing. This, I got this yesterday at a program, is a stop, start, continual change. This is your own personal objective to achieve the goals, the actions that you need to stop, start, continue or change and what and why. So what you want to think about this, if you're wondering what can you do, what actions are you gonna stop, start, continue or change? So when Jesse said to me often, he said, mom, it's hard being me. I'm 6'3", I'm black and I don't play football or basketball. I'm a swimmer and an artist. And sometimes I feel like a fly in a bowl of milk. Well, after Justin passed away, we found uh, that his teachers gave us a poem that he wrote for English 3, three weeks before he died. And it was called uh, Langston Hughes, Theme for English 3. The instructor said, go home and write a page tonight and let that page come out of you, then it will be true. I am an only child, not one of three, just me. I go to a school where I feel like a fly in a bowl of milk, alone walking down halls where I'm one of three or at least one of the few or dark skin like me. 
The kinks in my hair and the dark skin I wear connects me to the trailblazers who struggled to clear paths in order to make my journey easier. As I walk through the white halls with the white walls, I see the footsteps of Martin and Malcolm and Coretta before me. Their pain and suffering endured just so I can be me, free. In my classroom, I don't sit in the back waiting to be called upon because a sea of seats are all available to me. It's hard for me to imagine being stationed in the back, just like my mother and father were, where they couldn't even see that they were lacking opportunity. I turn on the TV to see faces with brown tones singing through microphones, not of yesterday's sorrows, as the wounds have healed, leaving scars of remembrance. When I look back at me, and what do I see? Not a rapper or a ball player, but a boy with dreams, goals, promise, opportunity. I remember that night when Justin had to come when he came home. All parents ask your kids, what do you have to do for homework? He said, oh, mom, I just have to write a poem. And my husband and I never saw this poem until four months after he died, because we never looked at his homework. So this is how he felt. But he felt that he had opportunity. He felt that he could do whatever he wanted, because that's what we instilled in him. So the thing is, is like, let people be. Blessed are the weird people, the poets and the misfits, the artists, the writers, the music makers, the dreamers and the outsiders, for they force us to see the world differently. We allow Justin to be who he was. He encouraged others to be who they were. Whatever he wanted to do, we found a way. And so that's what I'm saying. There's so many opportunities that the kids need to understand and people need to know that there are hopes, they can have their hopes and dreams and opportunity. So like I said, Justin drew this, um, uh, he made that world peace in fifth grade, the world uh, globe in um, fifth grade. And uh, he drew the picture of him on top of the world because that's what he felt. It has a glow around it. He did that when he was in fourth grade. So my son was the, I said the poet and the artist and the designer. And I said, he was, he was singing and I want to share something with you. Found this on Justin's cell phone. So proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous light for the ramparts we watch were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket and glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof to the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled Thank you. Thank you very much. Can't hear you, Lewis. Okay. okay.
Susan, thank you for that presentation, uh, the history, the uh, your your perceptions, and and um, all of the colorful illustrations. Um, Justin's art is amazing. Um, amazing young man. So sorry for your loss. Uh, wish I had I had gotten the chance to meet him. I think probably everybody on this Zoom on this uh, webinar feels like that. Um, we are going to go into some questions that, that you have standing for you. The first one is from, uh, it, it comes from Dan in Katadi, and he wonders, what is the photo on the flyer? What is that? It looks like the same photo that's right behind you, as a matter of fact. But. Right. So Justin drew that. As, he, he came home from school, and he um, it didn't have the, it, it looked like this. Let me see if you guys can see this. Can you see that? And he showed me this picture and he said, I said, Justin, that's great. He said, I'm not finished yet. So he goes down to his room and he comes back with that one. And I said, Justin, what does this mean? He said, oh, mom, you could be happy if the sun goes up or happy as the sun goes down. So I only have that little small picture because I took it with my phone and I thought that that was priceless the way he drew it. So that's what it comes on. So it means happy that the sun goes up or happy that the sun goes down. And we have all Justin's artwork and a history about all his artwork, a video on our website, justincarrawantsworldpeace.org. And you can purchase, very, you know, artwork. Very nice. That's a beautiful piece. All right, Susan, going to take a few questions uh, that have been waiting for you in the question room. Uh, first one's from Margaret, and she teaches high school Spanish, and she's planning to revamp her curriculum for, for next year that reflects anti-racism. Do you have any ideas or advice on this topic, like how she could lead these yep. discussions and prepare kids for them? I have lots of information that I could, I, I had to cut like a whole bunch of slides because I didn't have a lot of time. But if you um, send an email to me, I will forward that. If anybody wants information, there's toolkits that we have that are already planned out. So things that will help to explain to kids what that means and how they could be, do better and be better. Even some of the, situations that, um, that I already talked about, you know, allowing switching up kids from their peer groups, you know, making them study and learn with people they wouldn't normally talk to, you know, what, have them draw through art, like what do they see, you know, who are good and who are bad. So I have some toolkits that we can email out and some, so I can I'll actually give to, um, to Lewis or we can figure out how to get that. But there's different ways, it's too much to go through in, a, in, in this time frame, but we will be able to provide you support. Okay, thanks, Susan. Next question from Carla. Uh, what age did you give Justin the talk? Do you, did you feel a sense of sadness or that you were ending his innocence in having a conversation? Well, the first time uh, Justin was in a wedding, he was a, um, the ring bearer in a wedding when he was five. And when my husband took him back to take the tuxedo to the mall, they got in the car and someone yelled out the N-word to them. He was five. So Justin said, Daddy, what does that mean? And Daryl had to explain him. Another time, Justin saw on the side of the road a police pulling over an uh, African-American man and the way he was handling it. And Justin said, Dad, why are they doing that? What did he do? So that's when Daryl had to talk with him about he was 10 years old. 10 years old. When wow. 10 years old should be out there, you know, being carefree, but it's different because everybody I know, because kids, as I said, kids, no, five-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, six-year-old, 10, they see it. 
So we can't hold back because they're seeing it, whether we know it or not. So Justin's first experience with getting called the N-word, five. 10 is when he started really realizing what was going on. Wow. Um, okay, well, Susan, uh, this is from Lisa. Um, you spoke briefly about holding it in, and that has to go somewhere that the cork will pop. I'm working to explain how the looting, riots, violence that has occurred alongside the Black Lives Matter movement. How can we educate our community about these cause and effect consequences of all of microaggressions and hundreds of years of inequality when people cannot get past those acts of wrong? So maybe they, like I go back to the media, you know, the media likes to do the, the, the real showing over and over again, the black kids busting down windows and tearing up. But if they look at it there, you had the protesters, you had the looters that were organized, a lot of organized crime coming in in carloads with the equipment. There was a, a guy that my friend lives in LA. She said that um, a guy came, white guy came to LA, inner city, offering the kids money to go burn and destruct. So if someone's gonna give you $50 to go do something, you're gonna go do it. So I think, I know it happened, but people just think that all the black people were the ones tearing up and looting, it wasn't like that. I've seen videos of white kids in Santa Monica riding off with surfboards. So we have to be cognizant of all the information that we're getting and make sure we get the right. Yes, there was bad, they were looters, they were protesters, and there was organized crimes that were very, that the FBI has even said that were there to stir up and cause more trouble. So I think, you know, so we have to get past that because when you're looking at someone's lives, how many people, you see what happened? People burst. To watch George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds get his knee on his neck, lose the life out of him. And some people were like, well, he deserved it, he was a criminal. No one deserves that treatment. So people had enough, whether you're educated or not, whether you're homeless or not, they've had enough. So they just took to the streets, started destruction. But yes, there are criminals out there that take advantage of the situation too. So just be aware, read factual information. And if you can look at one video, you need to look at all of them. Well said. Um, Susan, this is uh, about the whole term of Karens with a K. Why is that Karens, in quotation marks, do not recognize they are a Karens, even when they are called out, even though they know the term and what it means, they cannot re recognize it in themselves. So what, what is the whole thing of Karens? You know, because you, you have blinders on, no matter what. Someone could tell you that it's today is Wednesday. They'll go, no, it's Thursday. It's Thursday. It's Thursday. So that's the problem. I had a situation this week where I posted about a, a pastor, a Catholic pastor up in the Bay Area who was Irish, and he's a pastor of a predominantly Black church. And he was upset because he wanted to do Black Lives Matter marching because he also knew the inside of how the Black Catholics are treated. So, so he got a call from the Pope, uh, the bishop, and the bishop said, you need to go on sabbatical. And he lost it. So I post that because I'm like, good, the, the priest found his voice. Well, I posted it and, and people turned it around. They tried to flip back stuff about abortions and what Black kids do had nothing to do with the situation. So, you know, Amy, Amy Cooper knew exactly what she was doing. I mean, the dramatic act of that he's next to me and he was 20 feet from her. They know what they're doing. They're entitled, you know? So it's unfortunate because they've been taught that they have, they have more power than anybody else and they control the situation. 
you know? And if that's part of the privilege, they can't see it. You know, they can say, I have a, a good best friend. My best friend's black, you know, but do you really know who that person is? You know, so they, they're always trying to change, deflect, change the topic. Very nice. Um, Susan, this is from Kit Lafayette. Um, hi, Kit, and your 10 children. Uh, well, they're probably grown by now. I recently read a valuable book, White Fragility. My kids are looking for other valuable books and documentaries and to further their education of systemic racism. Any recommendations? Well, you know, take a look at the book that I mentioned in the thing, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting at the Table Together in the Cafeteria? Uh, there's, um, there's, there's Black Rage that was written in the 60s by a guy, Price Cobbs, a, a psychologist in San Francisco in the 70s. He, the stuff he was writing about was back then. There, I have a whole list. And um, if you message me on through the website or on Facebook, then I can send it to you. I mean, it's like three pages long of good reads for your kids, for your younger kids, and for adults to understand. Okay. Um, trying to look and see. Uh, uh, many, many people want the presentation, want the presentation, want the presentation. Uh, a lot of thank yous to you, Susan, uh, from, oh, wow. Uh, long list of thank you, Susan, for uh, putting this presentation on for us. If there are no different types of questions, I think that's, that's okay. it for the questions, Susan. Well, I, uh, I think what we're going to do, Lewis, if, as I said, there's a lot of people who couldn't get in, so maybe we could do this again. Um, you know, you could put some... Um, send it out maybe in a week or so we might be able to yeah. i mean we can always send it out we no. can always do uh another webinar that's i just go by what the people say if they want to do it we do it they they let they let us know and we do it uh sounds like we uh people may want to do some more um and hear hear a little bit more um on the screen now susan we have can you see that susan you want to go over your information contact sure. information? Oh, you could just Google uh, the Justin Carr wants worldpeace.org. That's our website. There's a contact information on there. Or you could send an email through Justin, J U S T I N, Carr, C A R R, two R's, uh, worldpeace, W P foundation at gmail.com. So Justin Carr, W P. Uh, it's on the screen there in colorful graphics. And um, Susan. Thank you so much, all the way from Troy. It's been a long time. Please say hello to all your family. Thank you to all of you who attended, and hopefully you, you got some good information about um, you know what you can do, a little bit of history, a little bit of perspective on what you can do. Um, my final word, as soon as, Susan, you have any final words before I give the final word? Uh uh, let's see. No, I think that we have to, you know, we have to, we want the same privileges everybody does. It doesn't matter how your education or anything you have, you know, and that we have to be open to hear and respond. And, you know, as I said, it's really important that you can't, you're not going to change in a day or a week and throwing money at organizations and like I said, the holidays and all that stuff, that's just like this much of it. But we too, as an African-American community have our work to do as well. We don't get unscathed through this. We have to look at ourselves and make changes as well. So it's important, you know, so that we have open eyes and ears of what's going on 
And you have your own unique way of how you want to deal with it. And that's important to be open, get, get your right source, and just be open-minded and just change the ways. Like I said, what are you going to change? What are you going to stop? Those are the important things and give everybody a chance. Um, thank you, Susan. Well said. Just a few remarks. Again, thanks everybody for, for coming out. We will uh, continue to do these types of webinars so long as you're valuable. We had well over 200 uh, try to get in here today and uh, we will fix that uh, and be able to accommodate whoever after, after today. Um, my thoughts are why I'm so passionate about social services, particularly uh, for youth to get youth off the streets and see beauty and do all the things. When Susan mentioned the teach your kids part of it, um, that's why we have places like Caritas Creek and, and camp and summer camps and uh, just different ways besides the classroom and besides the home that help it enforce those values that make us all safe. Lastly, as far as the police is concerned, um, policing, community policing is a community effort. We need great police officers and we need the community support to support police officers and help them know what's going on in our communities. Thank you all. In the words of Russell Simmons, thank you very much. God bless and good night. Thank you.